as long as the cost of capital is as low as it is, and it can't, the cost of capital can't really go any lower, that's going to place pressure on cap rates. And then all of the uninvested capital that exists, all the demand in the investor markets, whether it's on the real estate side or on the operational side, you combine those two things. You combine a lot of demand with very low cost of capital. Generally speaking, that's going to keep cap rates down. They can't really go any lower because the prime rate and the you know, federal funds rate and those things, they can't go any lower. So the spread between those and, and cap rates could, I suppose, compress a little bit, but it's hard to see it going any materially lower. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I'm interviewing Victor McConnell, Managing Director and Head of Real Estate Services at VMG Health. This is the second in a two-part episode where Victor and I discuss trends in the healthcare real estate industry and healthcare industry. And last week's episode, where we discussed the valuation of healthcare properties, not only involves the real estate component, but also the healthcare company that is using the property to operate its healthcare practice. So welcome, Victor, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So now I want to move into a different trend. So I know private equity has gotten into buying. So it used to be hospitals a lot were buying and consolidating practices, and they still are, but private equity is as well, especially when it comes to vision. I mean, American Vision Partners is just gobbling up a bunch of ophthalmology brands, and then dermatology is another one. So do you think that this particular trend, and I, I don't think it has been affected by the pandemic, maybe it has, you can let me know, but I mean, I think that this trend will continue, I think, just trying to, some of these private practices, the operational side, they really just want to focus on serving patients and, and having kind of a parent company take over the operational side as attractive. But do you think that this trend is something that's going to sustain in certainly the short and medium term, yes. I mean, there still is a, a lot of uninvested private equity capital. And just like the healthcare real estate sector, there's more that's willing or interested in investing in healthcare. So, you know, at its most basic, there's there's an arbitrage between buying a, an individual or group of practices and then rolling them up into a platform. Maybe the platform trades at a 10 or 12 or whatever multiple of, of EBITDA and the individual or the group of practices that's being acquired by the platform may trade at, I don't know, a six or an eight. And so that gap is what's really driving you know, the profitability associated with that roll-up strategy. It's, it's more complicated than that, but that's, right. that's the core of it. And so that doesn't appear to be likely to change. There are questions about sustainability. You know, the Generally speaking, you have physicians who are carving out a, a piece of their historical comp in order to put a, a multiple on that in some cases. And then 
ideally there's income repair, the physician, the practice becomes more successful. And so the physician's annual income then returns to kind of pre-acquisition level. Obviously, if it doesn't, then that can be a a challenge because then you have a, a dynamic where physicians are fast forward three or four years after the deal, they're doing the same volumes and making less income. They they got the you know lump sum in the past, but so that's I mean that's a dynamic that we'll see how that plays out over the next five to ten years. I think that one trend of the pandemic has been that you have more physicians that are probably interested in selling their practice and who are evaluating do I want to go become an employee for the health system or do I want to go be part of a private equity platform company? And those are kind of very different paths that depending upon maybe where a physician sits in their career or a variety of other factors, they're going to lean one way or the other. But the trend of private equity acquiring practice entities is, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Do you think having, you know, in some cases it was just, you know, four to six weeks of, you know, having elective surgeries be halted. Do you think that might've tipped some people in the scale of, you know, I don't want to deal with this again if it happens. <laughs> well, you know, anytime you're a small business owner or you're, you know, a physician who's in an individual or small group practice and you have something like that, it drives home I think some some of the increased risk. There's there's can be increased reward, but there's also increased risk with being in that position. So, I know in some markets, not all markets, I've heard hospitals say, "Oh yeah, we've had a lot of physicians who have historically have not really been interested in a practice sale and who are now interested. Yeah. Well, I want to move on to cap rates. So, you know, healthcare, real estate, privacy, they've always across the board, they've always been attractive to investors. And as we know, there's more sophisticated investors that have a track record. And then there's some that get into it because, you know, they have a conversation at a cocktail party that they have to get into medical office properties and healthcare properties. But, you know, it is a mission critical demand driven development and you know cap rate compression is occurring even though we have all of this variability in the market from real estate d- dynamics to you know everything else but do you see cap rate compression continuing or leveling out well i mean i think pre-pandemic no one really thought that you know the primary indexes that the the 10-year tino the prime rate and, and kind of capital markets indicators were going to go down they did because it was a response to the pandemic and they've remained low. So as long as the cost of capital is as low as it is, it can't, the cost of capital can't really go any lower. That's going to place pressure on cap rates. And then all of the uninvested capital that exists, all the demand in the investor markets, whether it's on the real estate side or on the operational side, you combine those two things. You combine a lot of demand with very low cost of capital Generally speaking, that's going to keep cap rates down. They can't really go any lower because the prime rate and the federal funds rate and those things, they can't go any lower. So the spread between those and and cap rates could, I suppose, compress a little bit, but it's hard to see it going any materially lower. You answered my next question with regard to the capital market. So it's good. Yeah. So in general, you know, your outlook of healthcare real estate, I mean, do you see any one trend sort of predominating the market? And, you know, in general, kind of where you see it heading over the next few years? Well, I'd, I'd ask you when you say it, what do you mean? I guess I would push back at the idea of, of healthcare real estate being monolithic, of course. Like as we've talked about, there's all these different 
all these different slices of it and they all have different, you know, different outlooks. I mean, generally the things that probably anybody who listens to your podcast is aware of, you know, you have, you have an aging population, you have more investors interested in healthcare real estate. You have a sector that kind of weathered the pandemic and wasn't unaffected, but got through it better than most other sectors. All of those things would make one optimistic if you were a an owner or an investor in healthcare real estate. But again, it depends on where you sit in the the kind of continuum of of healthcare real estate properties. An equivocal non-answer to your question. That's okay. It's a big question and to to narrow it down. So I'll I'll ask a question that we haven't touched on. So, you know, both of us sort of read and listen to the same industry information. And and one thing that I've heard healthcare companies say is, you know, give us something different in response to obviously the severe acute clinical healthcare services, they need to be in a clinical environment. But but I think what may or may not happen with the result of the pandemic is a focus on health and wellness. Let's offer and community health. Let's try to get ahead of any healthcare conditions that, or monitor them, or at least be aware of them instead of having a pandemic say, oh, you know, you're not healthy and you're going to be affected more. So if they're more of a health and wellness environment, do you see those being, you know, obviously urgent cares have already been doing this, being in, in more convenient locations. But for example, if there was like a mixed use development where there was multifamily and retail and, you know, maybe like a health and wellness clinic to go and get like annual physicals or, you know, go and get some checkups that then get, you know, sent to your primary care physician, which may be in a different location. But you know, it's convenient for the patient to go in and do this. And, you know, with technology becoming more sophisticated, people can do this where they live instead of having to go to either a campus or a clinic that may or may not be convenient. Do you, do you see anything like that happening? Well, I mean, convenient access to care, I think, you know, agree 100% that that's, that that is a trend that'll, you know, continue to accelerate. And what does that mean? It it means both, you know, in the case of some care, more, you know, remote or virtual care. It means more, you know, outpatient sites that are easy in, easy out. The kind of larger question of health and wellness, I think, is part of, I think about that, I guess, in the context of this long-term but very, very slow trend towards more value-based care. And when you have more healthcare providers who may also be insurers, kind of the Kaiser model, or, you know, cases where there's in theory an alignment to drive down overall cost of care. Mm -hmm. And you're, I think like you've seen a lot of investment in the behavioral health sector from really from all sorts of different entities, because if, if you can prove out and then financially incentivize treatment of say a behavioral health condition that results in less less chronic episodes occurring afterwards, then you've reduced overall system cost of care. So, you know, if a if a hospital is fully responsible for kind of a patient life from cradle to grave, then it's not just about, you know, revenue associated with, you know, episodic fee-for-service care. It's about, hey, if I can treat this, if I can effectively treat this behavioral health episode, 
then there may not be the same requirement for some of these other types of care. And I think that the system is will continue to inch along towards that as we're better able to kind of track and quantify the impact of, of say, certain types of wellness care. And as government continues to, to incrementally and gradually try to tie more reimbursement to value. So long answer to your question. But yes, I think that the, the wellness sector is certainly a, a high growth one that should probably continue to remain so. Well, Victor, thank you for all of that. So I'll, we'll go to some easy questions and get to know you. <laughs> so what was your first job? Probably, you know, mowing lawns as a kid is, is informal first job and then waiting tables, washing dishes at later ages. Builds character. <laughs> what would you be doing for a living if you were not working in the healthcare real estate industry? I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is, I planned on this from, from early childhood. So I don't know. I, like I said earlier, I was a, a creative writing major in undergrad. So I'd probably be either trying to do that or maybe have failed and wound up doing something else, being a, I don't know, attorney or I have no idea, all sorts of different things. What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? Well, just yesterday, I finished a book called She Never Told Me About the Ocean by a friend of mine, Elizabeth Maqueda. It's a nice, a nice novel. And next in the queue, I have this book on my desk, Underland by Robert McFarland, which is about the underworld you know, from a literal perspective, what lies underneath the surface of the earth, and then also from a mythological and literary perspective as well. Oh, very interesting. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? I do a lot of rock climbing, so I, I don't do that every day, but I try to climb when I can and try to stretch and do those, those sorts of things. What was your last rock climbing adventure? I went bouldering yesterday up at a, a place called Guanella Pass in Colorado. Is Colorado a choice to live because you're able to pursue that? Well, I, I lived out here many years ago and had a bad accident, broke both legs actually in 2005, and that sent me back to Texas. That's a whole another story and led to me working in this industry, actually. And then I moved back out here four years ago to help open our Denver office. Oh, very nice. Oh, so in your opinion, are leaders born or are they trained? Can I say both? It's, you know, yeah. in the in the nature-nurture dichotomy, I think it's always both. Well, great. Well, thank you, Victor. This has been a great interview. I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.